Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and I have been gone for a long time. At least it's a long time for me. Um, I wanted to take a break in June from the podcast. I had produced one episode per week since April of 2019, and I had only missed one week in that time. And I just needed a break. I was exhausted from trying to remember to find guests and then you know, mustering up the ability to have a really uh, interesting conversation. A lot of times with someone I was meeting for the first time or didn't really know that well. And uh, although it was a really great experience for me to work that much and to learn about how I work and how much I should work, and also just to learn so much from that many interviewing that many guests, I needed a break. So in June, like I said, I thought I'll just take a month break and I'll come back in July and I will, um, you know, keep going, keep it moving. But I just was really enjoying not worrying about the podcast. And so I just didn't really put a time frame back on uh, returning to making regular episodes. And uh, I, some people would ask me, when do you think you'll start back up again? And my answer at that time was, well, whenever I have something to say. And so uh, I have something to say, something to share today that I think will be interesting and potentially useful. Um, I don't know if this will lead to regular episodes or if this will just be one episode and then you know go back into hibernation, so to speak. But uh, I'm taking the principal trumpet and the St. Louis Symphony audition um, in three days. So I'm recording this on Friday, October 14th. The audition is in three days on the 17th. I jotted down my thoughts this past Sunday, um, and I wanted to make an episode where I get my thoughts down and share them with you before I take the audition. I think it's pretty rare to hear um, thoughts about someone's audition process uh, before they take the audition, before they know whether or not it was successful. You know, we often hear from audition winners after they take the audition. So everything that they say is framed as, here's what I did to win the audition. So if you want to call it confirmation bias or survivorship bias or just really good advice, uh, the audition winner's process is validated by the win. But we do know in auditions there is a lot that is out of our control. The committee on the other side of the screen may actually like your playing, but if it doesn't quite fit in with the way that they play or the, what they're looking for overall, uh, you might not get the job. You might not advance to the next round. And so it's an example of you did everything right in your process. It's just not the right fit. And that happens sometimes. Uh, a friend of mine who plays trombone, I was talking to him a few weeks ago when he was playing with the ASO. And he said, uh, you could think of it like this that you may be the best shade of red ever, but if the committee is looking for a shade of blue, you're probably not going to get the job. And it's kind of a crude illustration, but that makes sense. It's like you may have done everything to present yourself as the best you possibly can, and it may have been good enough, it just wasn't the right fit. And I think that's why I want to talk about this is because I don't want to talk to you about my audition process and what I went through, through the lens of here's what I did to win, but here's what I did and here's why I think it was worth it without knowing whether or not I'm going to actually win or not. So I, I think we see this idea of I'm a shade of red, but they're looking for a shade of blue uh, and something like acting quite a lot. You know, actors will audition for many different roles and they put their stamp on a particular audition or a particular way of doing things and actors will get chosen for roles and sometimes great actors don't get chosen for roles. I think a lot of times that happens. Um, but when we think about certain actors fulfilling roles and just being the sort of epitome of that role, I can think of someone like Brian Cranston as Walter White in Breaking Bad. When I was growing up in high school, I watched a fair amount of Malcolm in the Middle. I loved that show. 
And so myself, like many others, probably when we saw that Brian Cranston was going to be involved with Breaking Bad, or we saw our first episode of Breaking Bad, and we're like, well, that's the guy from Malcolm in the Middle. This is kind of weird. We, I think many of us saw that and went like, this is going to be weird. But he ended up blowing that role out of the water. And it was just, it's sort of like a iconic role for him now. And it's hard to imagine anybody else doing that. Uh, My wife and I are watching Parks and Rec right now. So uh, pretty much everybody on that show, I feel, actually embodies the spirit of their character in a way that it would be hard to imagine anybody else doing it. But Amy Poehler, uh, for an example, Amy Poehler is Leslie Nope. I feel like really embodies the sort of quirkiness of that character, uh, but also the desire to continue serving and sort of almost be selfless um, in her service towards the town uh, of Pawnee. And um, I just think it's she she really embodies that role. It would be hard to imagine a different actor playing that role. Uh, and then uh, another example, I got this, uh, I actually watched this movie on recommendation from my friend Demondre Thurman, who is an incredible euphonium player and also teaches at um, Indiana University. Uh, he told me he recommends to his students that they watch the movie Training Day, which stars uh, Denzel Washington as Alonzo Harris, as an example of just confidence. Den- Denzel exudes incredible confidence as that character in the movie. Uh, to some degree, you could argue to his detriment. If you've seen the movie, uh, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, but he just really embodies that character. It's hard to imagine anybody else other than Denzel doing that role. Um, and then uh, one final example that I'll use to sort of transition into the next point is um, um, Steve Carell playing Michael Scott on The Office. And the reason I bring this up is clearly he's he is that role. It's 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 just so incredible to watch him um, be that character on screen. He's totally believable. But uh, many. Many of you out listening to this might have seen this, but I've seen some inner, some clips on YouTube of other people auditioning for that role, like Seth Rogen and maybe Danny McBride, a few other actors auditioned for that role. And watching them audition for that role and then thinking about them doing it instead of <clears throat> Michael Scott, or sorry, instead of Steve Carell, uh, it's just hard to imagine. Does, but, you know, Seth Rogen in the roles that Seth Rogen has done, he it works. Danny McBride, he's in the Eastbound and Down show, and he plays a bunch of other roles, but that's how I know him the best. He kills it in that role. So I, what I'm trying to do here is paint a picture that people, there are some people who audition for a role and they get picked for a certain thing, and then they embody that and they thrive and everything is great. And then those same Uh, actors may audition for a different role and they may not get picked. And it doesn't mean that they're not someone who has had a career defining incredible role. It just means that they're not the right fit. And auditions are the same for us. It's just hard to see it that way because we don't get a chance to audition for a whole bunch of different things. It's like one audition comes up and we're all sort of vying for that. So it feels like the pressure is higher to be what somebody wants us to be in order to be successful or to win the job. Um, this also applies in sort of a different way of thinking about it. This same concept applies to business. Uh, you know, cell phones are a great example. What makes one person choose to buy an iPhone while others choose to buy a Samsung Galaxy, whatever number they're on now? Uh, clearly it comes down to individual preferences. I have an iPhone. My wife has, um, a Samsung Galaxy phone and it's, you know, like both phones are incredible. Both phones do incredible things. So it's not that I ch- we choose one because it's significantly better than the other, but just whatever the, the preference is and how well that product fulfills the desire of the consumer, so to speak. So if you want to think about it, in an audition, the way we perform is the actor or the product, and the committee is the casting director or the consumer. Uh, depending on their preferences and tastes, it's possible to play an average round and advance or to play your best and head home. And I have a story about that, the first version of that. Uh, when I, I didn't get tenure in Indianapolis in like March of 2014, I think that was the year. It could have been 2015. I think it was 2014, though. Um, anyway, whatever year it was, I didn't get tenure, let's say, on a, on a Sunday. I think we had a Sunday concert in Bloomington at IU. And then after that concert, I was... Uh, brought in to the conductor and he's like sorry you didn't get tenure 
And then I literally, after that, drove to Cincinnati, got you know, checked into my hotel, and the next day I auditioned for the Cincinnati Principal uh, Trumpet Audition. And I was, as you can imagine, I was pretty like unsure of everything, right? I was feeling very sort of low confidence in my abilities because I had just found out, oh, you're not good enough to play in this orchestra or whatever the reasoning was. And so I was pretty down. And I remember thinking to myself, well, all I can do is go in there and tell my story. You know, I can just try to do the thing that I know how to do as confidently as I can or as compellingly as I can or whatever you want to say. And I remember feeling that that first round I played, my memory of it, I remember feeling that it wasn't a great round. And I left and I was packing up and I was like, there's no way. And then I got a call that says you've advanced to the next round. So either it wasn't as bad as I thought, which is very possible, or... Um, in the midst of all the mistakes that I feel like I made, the committee heard something that they liked. So I had a, what I would consider a very average round, but I fit with what they were looking for, so they were willing to hear me again. Versus someone who may go in there and play perfectly, but the committee either doesn't connect with what they're doing or whatever the other reason is, and they don't advance. And this happens. This has probably happened to some of you out there right now. So why am I saying all of this? Well, Again, it's possible that a person who played their best and got sent home still might have prepared in an intelligent and thorough manner. Even though he or she didn't win, there may be some things that the rest of us can learn from and apply to our own preparation to achieve greater success. So what I'm trying to do with this episode is I want to share what I'm doing, even though I don't know how this audition will turn out. I feel that I'm prepared but I'm guessing many other great players will be there, and they will also be prepared. None of us can guarantee the outcome of any endeavor that we choose to pursue. So um, I just want to be real with you about what I did, kind of the process of how it worked out. Um, you know, at the moment of writing this, I guess now the moment of telling you this, um, no part of me is totally confident I'm going to win the audition. Uh, I feel prepared. I feel very prepared to do well, but I don't feel confident that there's just you know no way I'm not going to win the audition. I don't feel that way at all. Um, you know, but instead of trying to pump myself up and fill my head with some sort of nonsense that does not going to help me, my plan is to stay focused on what I can control. So, with all of that in mind, in this episode, I want to share three things with you: one, how I approached this audition; two, some of the bumps and bruises along the way. And then we'll wrap up this episode by discussing some of the reasons I think that I've already been successful with this audition prep before I had taken the audition. The last time that I shared about audition prep that I had done was the last time I took an audition back in 2019 uh, when I took the Chicago Symphony Principal Trumpet Audition. At that time, I was really into live streaming and I was really trying to share my processes. So I actually live streamed my practice sessions for that. Some of you may remember. And I shared my process and my thoughts and my actual round from the Chicago audition in an episode that I titled, I Didn't Win and That's Okay. You can find that episode. I think it's you know, July of 2019 or something like that. Uh, since then, I have learned a ton about programming through working with other musicians, testing my ideas in my own practice, and then I just continue to read uh, really great books that have sparked unique ideas. So even though I haven't taken the audition yet, I feel confident that the preparation I did for this audition was far more effective uh, than previous audition attempts. And so I want to share a general overview of what I did. All right, this part's going to get a little bit technical, um, but I'm going to try to make it as accessible as possible. Um, if anybody has any questions, you can you know certainly send me a message on my website or something like that. But here goes. I began to prepare for this audition on July 21st by finding goal tempos for each of the 46 excerpts on this list. So to begin this process, I would find five recordings of each excerpt from reputable recordings. You know what I mean? I didn't find like a, I mean, there's a lot of great performances out there on YouTube, but um, some of them are maybe not the best ones to choose from. So I tried to find, you know, great conductors, great orchestras, and I would, you know, tap the tempo on um, tonal energy to try to figure out approximately what tempo they were going. 
And then so I would then all when I had the five recordings, I would add them all together and divide them by five. That would give me the mean. And then I would line them up from lowest tempo to highest tempo, pick the middle number, and that would be the median tempo. I would add those two together and then divide them by two. And that was the tempo that I took. I got this um, uh, system of doing it from a percussionist friend of mine named Theo, uh, who shared this with me as a way to get more data um, with your selections uh, for tempos. So I used, um, yeah, so I used those numbers to find a good average tempo as my goal tempo for the audition. All my programs, as many of you know, are built off of uh, tempos and numbers and things like that, so you need a solid number with this particular system of preparation. Um I also worked with my wife, uh, she's the principal clarinetist of the Alabama Symphony, uh, my wife Kathleen, to make intentional decisions about phrasing, architecture, and color for each excerpt. I wanted to make as many of the musical decisions ahead of time. Of course, through the process of practicing, you're going to refine your musical approach, that's, uh, that's pretty clear, but I wanted to have a very clear plan right from the get-go. I also researched each piece to find historical context, I got the translations for the musical direction from, you know, com all the composers have them, but especially composers like Mahler uh, have so much direction in there. And then I also found uh, the, tr the scores for each excerpt to use in my study. And so I would listen to the piece and I would watch along with the score. I wasn't trying to really, uh, I don't know how to study a score really to do it like a conductor would. But so basically all I did was I would just listen to the piece and watch along with the score. And the more that I watched it, the more things I could pick up on. And so it was sort of just like a, I will spend a lot of time doing this and that will help me get better at it rather than like, I really just have a great system. So uh, I spent about eight to 12 hours over the course of a week doing all of this work. And pretty much all of this happened before I practiced. I did do some slow tempo work on some excerpts that I wasn't as familiar with or I need I knew I needed to sort of um, figure out, but I didn't really start the bulk of my practice until I had done all of this sort of uh, pre-work. Um, additionally, one of the things that I, I did that I had never done before that I think was uh, really at least a good exercise, if not really helpful, was uh, I thought about uh, who am I and what makes me and my playing unique? What is going to separate me from the other great players at this audition? And I started thinking about this because I took a show. I was just thinking about a show like Parks and Rec and a show like even just Stranger Things. They're obviously completely different shows. So if you're in the mood for a comedy, you're probably not going to watch Stranger Things. And if you're in the mood for a sci-fi borderline horror show, you're not going to watch Parks and Rec. And those shows don't try to apologize for not being the other thing, you, you, don't, you don't see a Parks and Rec trying to incorporate elements of sci-fi horror to get fans of Stranger Things to watch Parks and Rec. Parks and Rec is just Parks and Rec. Stranger Things is just Stranger Things. So you're thinking about what makes these shows unique and why would I watch them? It's just because they're committed to what they are. So I started thinking, well, what would that be for me? What would it be if I was going to commit fully to what I am or who I am or how I play, whatever that means, what would that be? So I spent some time thinking about it. And um, I came up with in my prep that I think my sound is unique, the sound that I create on the trumpet, and I also think the presence of my sound is a, an attractive part of my playing. And so that became another way to filter uh, the recordings that I made and that I was listening back to. So in, in addition to you know time and pitch and articulation and sound, you know those types of things that we're all listening for, I was also listening for, is my sound present in this recording? Or does it sound, you know, sometimes, especially soft excerpts, I would find myself playing like too soft and it sounded scared on the recording. And I was like, well, like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter like what I'm feeling when I play the trumpet. Like I may have felt that that, that, that dynamic was a appropriate dynamic. If it sounds scared, I need to play more full, if that makes sense. Um... Finally, the last thing that uh, is worth mentioning, uh, I did a screen capture on my iMac, I went on YouTube, and I found all of the excerpts, and then when I was finished with that, I pulled that file into Logic and chopped it up so each excerpt uh, was kind of flowed into the next excerpt, and I had this sort of 
a little longer than an hour um, track that I would listen to of all of the excerpts back to back to back. And I used that on long drives um, that I had to make from place to place. Um, and I would use that to sort of just continue hearing the excerpts in context, trying to put myself into that thing, um, that I guess that place. Uh, that was a really helpful thing that I did. Um, once I started practicing on a program that I wrote, I aimed to study two hours for every hour that I practiced. Uh, in the beginning, I, I held this ratio pretty well, but over time, the ratio clearly favors actually practicing. But for the probably the first three or four weeks, I did a pretty good job keeping that two-to-one ratio. Um, and then finally... Actually, the final part of this is um, this is like a trumpet-specific thing. Other instruments may not have to do this, but um, the early part of the process, I was trying to figure out what instruments I wanted to play on various excerpts, what mouthpieces, what mutes I wanted to use. Uh, for example, um, I've always played the Model 3 post-horn solo on C trumpet, but for this audition, as I was sort of practicing it on the early side of things, I thought, well, the sound is in a post horn. It's going to be a little bit different. Maybe I could experiment with playing it on E flat because it'll make it, I think, a little bit easier to traverse the excerpt, but it also might be an appropriate sound. Um, there's all sorts of different things like that. You know, which mouthpiece am I going to use for the West Side Story excerpts? Which mouthpiece am I going to use uh, for the Rotary excerpts? Stuff like that. I kind of tried to figure out those details as early as possible. Okay, so that's like sort of the early phase. Uh, if you've listened to any of my stuff um, on YouTube, there's an episode called that, or there's a video that talks about the three phases of performance preparation. That would be the acclimation phase. So moving into the ingraining phase, I'll try to go over this quickly. I divided all of the excerpts into five groups: uh, easy, technical, piccolo, upper register, and lyric and long. For each of these groups, I assigned. Uh, each excerpt to these groups, right? So Magnificat would go in the piccolo group. Pictures went, or the promenade went into the easy group. Uh, the ballerina dance went into the technical group. The Bartok upper register, you know, that fifth movement like that went into the upper register. Something like Pines of Rome went into lyric and long, for an example. Um, after that, I would decide how many days per week I wanted to practice it and how many times uh, per practice session that I wanted to do. Um, so for pictures, I said that went into the easy category. Then I would see this because it was in the easy category, the excerpts that were easy, uh, I would see them two times per week. And each time I saw it, I would perform two repetitions. Uh, so an excerpt like the high lick from the fifth movement was placed in the upper register category, like I mentioned, and those excerpts in that category, I would practice three times per week, uh, two repetitions each time I practiced it. So you're 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 deciding the groups, you're deciding how many times per day you want or per week you want to practice them and how many repetitions per practice session. And then once you have that, you put the individual excerpts in those group and that tells you how many times to practice the excerpts. Um, the numbers that I chose were intentional. I chose them for a reason, but they could very easily be something different. Um, this kind of whatever you feel like is right for you and how much time you have or how well you do or don't know the excerpts. Um, so then I, you know, I combined, when I combined these groups and the goal tempos I found from listening to the recordings, I was able to make a two week program that listed what excerpts to play each day, as well as how many repetitions to perform at specific tempos. And so from there, I did my best to practice deliberately with that program. I recorded every single repetition, and I listened back immediately to get feedback on how I needed to adjust my playing to move closer towards my mental representation. Uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with that term, it's just another way to say the mental model or the sound you hear in your head. So it's, it's kind of crazy to say this, but I went back and I looked, and from August 20th to October 8th, I made a total of 1,022 individual recordings of excerpts which is about a thousand more than I normally would make. It's crazy. Uh, once the two-week program was up, I spent a week or so recording at tempo to assess what was working and what still needed attention. And then once I had that information, I made another two-week program with different groups that reflected my current level of understanding and the goals that I had. And I did the whole thing over again. After that two-week program, I spent another week recording excerpts at full tempo to see where I was at. 
I ran a one one more uh, final one week program. That program finished on October eighth, and then I was left at this week, um, which is what I would consider to be peak week. So what I did during this week today is actually the where I'm recording this is actually my very last day of preparation. What I did for this week was Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. I played three rounds of 10 excerpts and two rounds of nine excerpts to get through the entire list. Yesterday, I played five rounds of six excerpts, which is 30 excerpts, and today I will play three rounds of six excerpts. So that tapers down a little bit in terms of the amount of work I'm doing. Tomorrow, I will travel, so I won't play. Sunday, I'll play between 30 and 60 minutes, depending on how it feels. And then Monday is the audition. So that's kind of my, that was my plan for this particular week. Um, like I said, this protocol, uh, this approach is kind of my attempt at mimicking the kind of taper that marathon runners do before a long race. Um, so periodically throughout the process, I would play excerpts for my wife to get feedback. And the only other time I played for someone else was when I, pl I played for our principal horn on o August 22nd and October 6th. All right. So I didn't play for a lot of other people. That was kind of on purpose um, for this particular thing. I just wanted to sort of do my thing. Uh, but I do, thinking, I do think playing for other people is a pretty necessary uh, part of the process because it's really the only way you can get outside of yourself. Like You can record yourself a ton and you can say, this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to do it and I'm going to listen to myself and I'm going to improve. But once you get to a certain point where you're like, I'm unsure of how to get better or I'm unsure of how, what progress looks like or I feel like I'm doing well, but maybe there's more, you got to play for somebody else to get outside feedback. Um. So wrapping up here with this point, um, so and this is might sound crazy to you, but getting to a point where I felt like I was playing the way I wanted to consistently took between four and five weeks. I'll go a, more into detail in the next point about that. Um, you know, because I was recording myself so much, I was fluctuating between, hey, I kind of like the way that sounds, and Ryan, why can't you just play in time and in tune with a good sound? Um, right now, in these late st stages of preparation, my plan is to... I actually didn't record myself at all this week. Um, what I was focused on, I was trying to recall my plan. And I just wanted to remember that I enjoy playing the trumpet. So to get out of this critical mode that I've been in for the past, like, I don't know, since, you know, early August... And to just say, like, okay, all of that work is done. I'm just going to play. And for better or for worse, I'm going to... I'm going to hone and present where I'm at right now. Um, it's been a pretty interesting process. Like as I've recorded these rounds, I feel that I've really sort of, I've gotten into a good groove of like, whether I'm making mistakes or I'm playing well, I'm really just focused on, I just need to make as much music as I possibly can and keep my mind focused on the musical plan that I uh, have. Um, I could honestly, I could go into more depth on everything that I was focused on in each different phase, uh, but this episode is already going to be longer than I want it to be. So um, we're going to move on to the next point. Uh, you know, now that we've covered the nuts and the bolts of how I've prepared for this audition, uh, let's move on to some of the bumps and bruises I encountered along the way. The reason that I want to talk about the bumps and bruises that I experienced is because I don't, I don't often think we hear from people how difficult an audition preparation uh, is. When we hear from audition winners, it's here's what I did, and I did this, and I did that. And to really understand what it feels like in the middle of the process, it's, it's, it's one thing to, to reflect back on how you may have felt, but I actually kept a journal through the entire process and was writing down how I felt on any given day. And so I can look back and see how I was feeling on any given day. And I can tell you there are many, there are, there are many small bumps and bruises I encountered during this audition prep. I certainly had my bad playing days. I had frustration with notes that I was missing and just 
you know, not understanding why I couldn't do something. And I actually got COVID, you know, in the middle of this process as well, which you know, knocked me out um, for a few days, but I did still get a little bit of practicing in. Uh, so for the sake of brevity, I just want to share two problem areas that were challenging for me to find solutions for. The first is related to uh, my trumpets themselves, and the second is related to time management. So the point related to my trumpets themselves, I'm going to give you a little bit of backstory so you kind of understand how I got to this point. I've played Bach trumpets my entire career. I've always liked the way they felt. Uh, I've really, you know, the, the way that I the move air through them and the sound was certainly what I had in my head. And so as a result, I've never really had a desire to switch to another instrument maker. However, as many of you know, Houghton Horns sponsored my podcast for a long time. And I was talking to my friend Mark Houghton, and he was kind of suggesting that maybe we could make some video content together. And one thing that seemed obvious was taking some of their inventory, sending it to me and having me play it and make some playing parts of the video and just talking about the instruments. So they did that. They sent me a few Shires instruments and I play tested those for a while. I actually really liked the way those instruments played. And even though I didn't keep them, I think that kind of that experience opened up my eyes a little bit to what else is out there. So long story short, I got a hold of a new Yamaha B-flat and C a Gen 3 uh, uh, trumpet, and I ended up, I ended up buying them. Uh, and when I bought them, they weren't 100% perfect. They, I liked them more than what I was playing, but there were still some things I wanted to, to tweak. It wasn't like sort of the, the way I was moving air through the instrument didn't feel quite exactly the way I liked it or whatever. But many people were telling me that it's very possible to fly to New York to work with Wayne Tanabe. He would tweak the instruments and he would be able to create something that is 100% made to my specifications. So I did that. I went to New York uh, in August. This is actually my very first trip to New York in my entire life. And I um, went to the Yamaha, uh, I guess, I forget what it's called, but it's where Wayne works. And uh, working with him was awesome. And I felt like the work he did completely changed the way these horns played. I remember being like, this is exactly what I want. Wayne was like, yeah, this sounds good. We were, we were both thinking, this is awesome. We're in a good place. So I flew home, and I was excited to get to work on the list. When I took my instrument out that next day, things felt weird. Like things, it was like not dialed in or something was wrong. And I was like, oh, no, this is weird. But I thought... I was just traveling yesterday, so maybe that's kind of the problem. So I just I did my best to get through that particular day on that program. I put my horns away, and I was just thinking tomorrow will be, be will be better. But they they weren't. The next day they still felt pretty terrible. Uh, I actually wrote in my journal entry on August twentieth. I wrote warm up is feeling dismal. <laughs> And then October, or sorry, August 23rd, three days later, I wrote, these past two days of playing have been really tough. So I just remember feeling like I went to Wayne, I got these horns tweaked, I came back, things are feeling terrible, but I, I do I have to fly back to New York to have him work on it again? It just, it was just kind of unnerving that these fixes that I was like so excited about, um, were, it was actually harder to play kind of in some ways than before. Uh, what ended up fixing the solution was literally they have this sort of oversized screw on the spit valve, and all I needed to do was just twist that screw a certain way for a, you know for a while, and it like kind of opened things up and made them better. And so I'm glad I know that now. I know how to fix it and all that kind of stuff. But it was about a week, honestly, of feeling like things are not right, and am I going to be able to do this? The good news is I had a ton of time before the audition to kind of figure it out, so I wasn't stressed too much like if I was dealing with that the day, the week before the audition it would have been a different story but um during this time I also switched from uh this prep I also switched from Hammond mouthpieces to Toshi mouthpieces and that seemed uh to to sort of help things become more focused and dialed in um so yeah like as I was reading back my journal entries don't I don't feel like they totally capture it but I was in a pretty weird place during that week and I was just trying to stay positive. I was focused on finding a solution for my problem. I remember Kathleen saying, you know, you seem to be handling this pretty well. Uh, but it was hard. I was, it, I, it was hard. I, I'll just say that much. And so 
you know, like I said, it was early enough in the process. So I was able to sort of focus on finding solution and not be too focused on, you know, what's this going to mean for the audition itself. Uh, but that was one of the major things I was sort of working through in the audition prep. And again, you know, a week doesn't seem like a long time, but we're in the middle of it. It was not great. The other thing I really had to deal with in this prep was traveling. Uh, the way the timing worked out, I ended up starting to practice for the audition on August 2nd, which is the same day that we had traveled to New Hampshire to visit my wife's family. So while the rest of the family was off enjoying the weather, they were swimming and relaxing and all that kind of stuff, I was spending two to five hours practicing and studying for the audition. In my journal for that day, on August 2nd, I wrote, I'm not going to take all my horns to New Hampshire, just my sea. My plan is to work the program like normal and mentally practice the excerpts that aren't on C. It will be interesting to see how this approach turns out. So overall, even though I felt like I was able to be productive with this approach in New Hampshire, it certainly would have been better if I could have spent the first week of my audition program in my own office with my own recording equipment so I could get that feedback. Uh, but it would have been insane to consider canceling a vacation because of the trumpet. So I did the best I could while I was there. I did get a lot of quality studying in, which was super helpful. So that was one sort of benefit from not being able to practice as much or as, as efficiently or whatever was that I had that um, ability to study. When we returned home from New Hampshire, we literally had one day to recover, and then we turned around, rented a car, and drove to Kansas City over two days to go to a friend's wedding. Uh, because we drove on this trip, I was able to bring all of my horns instead of just my C, but I still wasn't able to easily record myself. I ended up practicing in hotel rooms, sort of making these pillow forts to aim my bell at so it would dampen the sound. That's certainly not an ideal situation, but again, it was better than completely taking time off. And yeah, I wasn't going to not go to my friend's wedding so I could prepare for a trumpet audition. That would be ridiculous. So again, I did the best that I could. A few days after getting back from Kansas City, I did the New York trip I mentioned earlier. According to my journal, it looks like I was able to finally be home and record lists on the 20th of August, which is the same date that I wrote, warm up today feels dismal. So then the week, so when I got back and I was home and I started being able to record, that was the week where everything was feeling terrible on my trumpet. So overall, between the travel and my trumpet troubles, it took until... September 9th for me to write, the last few days are the first ones to start feeling good. It took about 40 days to start feeling like I'm playing the way I want. So I hope this is encouraging for any of you listening to this who felt, who have felt like you're doing an audition prep right now, or you've done them, or you, you will do them in the future, that it's, just, it's not this overnight thing in the beginning of the process where everything just clicks in. That's not how it works. For me... Through all of these things that I was going through, maybe it wouldn't take 40 days if I had never had the trumpet troubles and I sat down you know, on the first day and I could record myself. Maybe it would be one week. Maybe it would be two weeks. But the way I'm feeling right now is, is fairly confident that I can bring forth my musical ideas uh, consistently. So even, having, even at taking 40 days doesn't necessarily mean that now at the end of the process, I I'm any less capable than I would have been. So I just wanted to share this part of it uh, because, I, like I said, I hope it's encouraging. I've been taking auditions for almost 15 years, and I've put in thousands of hours of work, and still after all this time later, it still takes me time to get these excerpts working the way I want them to. At, after this point, after like August 20th, and after I kind of figured out my trumpet troubles, I started to see myself writing things like, today was good more often than not. Uh, it certainly takes time for anyone and everyone to be their absolute best. Uh, later in that journal entry on September 9th, where I wrote the last few days or the first ones to start feeling good, I wrote, in general, I'm finding I have more confidence now than when I started. I switched to Yamaha horns, got my horns tweaked, changed mouthpieces, studied a ton, and have put in many hours of hard, deliberate practice. I don't think I feel better because I've convinced myself I'm good enough. I've just seen the result of the work I've put in. I'm starting to like the way I sound. 
I hope this makes sense. Like sometimes we get messages from people uh, when we don't feel strongly about the way we're playing or the way that things are going. And you'll have people say things, which, you know, it can be useful and it can be helpful, but people will say things will like, you know, like you're already fine. Like everything is cool, which is true. We should separate ourselves. Like just because I'm not playing the trumpet the way I want to doesn't mean that like I am bad as a person. That's like a prerequisite, right? Like we have to separate those things. But I think sometimes... We don't see feeling confident on our instruments as just a result of proper preparation. Sometimes I think we see it as I have to sort of get myself pumped up and feeling good about my playing. Even if I don't, even if my playing's not going the way I want to, I have to convince myself of something that I may not feel like is true. When rather, it's just, it took me 40 days to prepare in such a way where all, like all of the good repetitions that I was able to have started to stack on top of each other and I was able to be more consistent. So every audition process will have its bumps and its bruises. And if it doesn't, you're either the best trumpet player ever or you are not doing it right. Um, the second point or the other time in my prep where my time management was challenged, and I promise this point will be shorter than the previous one, was after my this season, my season with the ASO started up, and specifically our first Masterworks Week and our Maestro's Ball. Uh, these weeks appeared on back-to-back -back weeks less than a month from the audition date. Uh, the programs were insane. For our first Masterworks program, we performed 7 O'Clock Shout by Valerie Coleman, La Valse by Ravel, Concerto for the Left Hand by Ravel, and Pictures at an Exhibition by Mazorgsky. And I played all of it. That week, I took three full days off of audition prep in order to save my chops for the rehearsals and the concerts, and then the Maestro's Ball Gala the following week was also very difficult, and that required me to take off a few days of audition preparation as well. The only reason I didn't feel stressed about having to do this is because I started so early and had done so much quality work before these concerts happened. If I had waited until a month before the audition to start preparing for it, there's no way I could have prepared effectively. So each audition prep will be different, but I can say with certainty that I'm glad I started this early for this particular one. You know, sharing the bumps or the bruises of my audition process is important to me. It's really easy to see audition winners and assume everything was easy for them, that they just sailed through their prep and killed it because they're awesome. I don't think this is true, though. I think audition winners win because they consistently do the hard stuff. Being super picky about intonation, recording themselves and ruthlessly looking for improvements. This kind of work is humbling, but it's what causes the improvements necessary to play a compelling and consistent audition round. Uh, I think that's a good summary of this particular point of these bumps and bruises. So uh, I'd like to move on to some of my thoughts about why I think I've already been successful with this audition prep. This episode has turned out to be a little bit longer than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> you know, when I'm looking at my notes here, it doesn't look that long, but when I'm trying to talk about it and explain it, it's uh, it's a little bit longer than I thought. So uh, we are going to conclude this episode with this point. And to conclude it, I just want you to think about how you would answer this question. What makes all the hard work of an audition worth it? If you haven't or you don't plan on taking auditions, then change this question to something that applies to you. Maybe something like, what makes studying so hard for a test worth it? Now, I would assume for most of us, the most obvious answer is winning the audition. <laughs> or in the case of the test, it would be acing the test. And if you get that outcome, it's really easy to feel justified that your motivation or your reasons for uh, what makes it worth it were good. But what if you don't win or you don't ace the test? And you lose that motivation or that reason for doing it. Are there other things that could happen that would still make you feel like the hard work was worth it? For me, this audition has a ton of positive takeaways that I'm thinking about and trying to sort through. Uh, but instead of rambling incoherently for a while, I'm just going to leave you with two main takeaways. The first takeaway is that I am better at my current job because of how hard I tried during the St. Louis audition prep. The kinds of questions that I asked and I answered during this prep has made me a more compelling, more thoughtful, and more curious musician. For example, 
I, I played the opening of P- Promenade to pictures at an exhibition countless times in my career, uh, by myself in an audition room, of course. I've only performed the piece twice. Uh, I've always had sort of a standard approach to the excerpt that I like to have with it. But during this preparation, after listening to a particular recording of the New York Philharmonic a dozen or so times, I heard something that I hadn't heard before, a way of shaping the line that I hadn't considered. Uh, Not only did I incorporate that approach into my audition preparation, uh, but when we played pictures with the Alabama Symphony Orchestra a few weeks ago, I had stronger opinions on phrasing, and I went to some of the musicians around me, and I was like, well, what do you think about this particular phrasing? Um, I think it's kind of interesting. I normally haven't thought about it like this, but it could be interesting to do. And we did it, and I think the product was a little bit better, that I was able to have stronger, more formulated opinions and to be able to communicate those. Now, for this particular, you know, this particular excerpt, Uh, in a piece that's 30 minutes long, it might seem like a small and insignificant example. But if you imagine you had that kind of opinion for every single phrase and every piece of music you played, what do you think that would be like? That's what this particular audition prep showed me. I learned what it looks like to listen to music in a new way. That's for, for one of the things that I learned. I wasn't simply listening to figure out how it goes, but rather I was listening to see what I could find in these recordings. And that took way more listens than just trying to figure out how it goes. The drive behind working as hard as I could drove me to listen in new ways, which is something I will be able to take with me for the rest of my career. Many of you have probably listened to my interview with Barbara Butler, so you will remember this uh, section from her interview. But when I interviewed her, uh, she said this in her podcast, Uh, interview. She said, um, when you do an audition the right way and you prepare the way you're supposed to, you become permanently better. You go from level 16 to level 17 and you never go backwards. And that's kind of how I feel about this prep. I became permanently better. I think that's an incredible result of preparing for an audition because whether I win or I lose, I will be permanently better. And finally, uh, for the first time in my audition career, I really believe that I actually tried as hard as I could. And that is the other reason I think that I've already won in this audition prep, even without you know knowing what the result of the audition will be. Yeah, it's hard to say definitely, but I think up until this point, I've been afraid to try as hard as I could. I didn't want to try that hard and fail because then what did I have left? I would just feel like I'm not good enough, and I would feel like maybe I won't ever be good enough. And Barbara spoke to this in her interview. Uh, My friend Ansel spoke to this in his interview as well on a Winning the Job episode from a long time ago. But basically, if I just didn't try as hard as I could in the past or for any audition prep, I could say, well, maybe I didn't win this audition, but I didn't go all out. So that's probably why. Maybe if I tried as hard as I could, I would win it. But you're sort of hiding behind this veneer of I didn't try as hard as I could and therefore that's why I didn't win but um for this prep and and a big part of it is because um you know the job that I have here is a good job it's an orchestral job Uh, but sometimes it can feel that um you know the the financial landscape of orchestras my size can be kind of um you know uh, up in the air, it's like a roller coaster. Sometimes it feels like we're doing great. Sometimes we don't know what's happening. You know, over COVID, we took some cuts. And so a big motivator for me in this audition was not just for me to win this audition and feel awesome, but partly was like, well, this could be, you know, um, a, a better financial situation for our family. And so the motivation to do and to work as hard as I possibly could was very different. And for this prep, I truly feel like I've done everything I know how to do. I made a solid plan. I did my research, I recorded myself a ton, I played for others, I did a good amount of mock rounds on my own. I did all of that, and it is very possible that I won't advance or I won't win. You know, I don't know how I'll feel if that's the outcome. Of course, you go into any audition with the idea that I'm taking this audition because I would like to win. I would like, you know, that's why we're there. Um, You know, I do think that there's a lot for me to be grateful for and thankful for in my, in my life right now. And I think this audition prep has kind of um, 
encouraged me to think about those types of things. And I do actually have a higher level of, I guess, gratitude for the opportunities that are present to me right now, which is kind of mind blowing in some ways. And, you know, I was thinking about that. Maybe this is something to share. It's not written in my notes, but it's coming to mind right now that one of the things I think that I, I wish I would have done a little bit differently in the past is I wish I would have tried to take stock of what I have right now because I always felt like an audition was a way to a better life, a way to making more money or a way to making any money whatsoever. And I didn't necessarily always see what opportunities I had for me at my current place, if that makes sense. I think if you can see your current situation as having opportunities that can benefit you, then the audition is just another opportunity that you're pursuing, that if it works out great, if it doesn't, you still have these other opportunities that you're currently pursuing. Um, but when the audition becomes everything, I think that's a lot of times when the pressure can get to us and we know we feel like we have to win it. So I wish I had done that a little bit differently. And maybe uh, some of you out there kind of understand what I'm talking about. You know, this idea that like, uh, if I can just do this thing, if I can win this job, or if I can get to this place, things will be better. But I think for many of us, there are lots of opportunities. I can speak for myself for sure. There's a lot of opportunities right in front of me that I'm now trying to pursue. And um, it just gives me some hope that if it doesn't work out in St. Louis, I'm still going to have some really engaging, um, interesting, you know, fulfilling things to do here. And that it's not just, you know, all or nothing. So, um, you know, like I said, I don't know how I'm going to feel if the outcome is not winning, but I'm really hopeful that I'm going to be able to hold my head up high um, feeling that I really, truly did my best. With that, I think it's time to wrap things up. Again, sorry this episode was a little bit longer than I was anticipating, but I hope it was interesting for you to listen to. Um, if you need to get in touch with me, you can do that on thatsnotspit.com or That's Not Spit on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, I'm not on social media as much anymore, so you know you could also head to ryanbeachtrumpet.com and Um, send me a message there. I get that through my email and that's kind of maybe a more reliable way to get a hold of me if you really need to talk to me. I want to thank you for listening to this episode. It means a lot to me that uh, you would spend your time with me here and uh, I hope it was interesting to consider some of these ideas and um, yeah, we'll see you in the next episode.